welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 111. Now, this is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Anjali Masuga, and I'm really, really glad you could join us today. With me is my co-host on the show, the all-round stand-up human being that is Musa Kalenga. What's up, bro? Hey, hey, how you doing? Good to have back on the show, and good to be back on the show. Look forward to a great discussion. It's going to be energetic and full of stuff, and I'm looking forward to sharing everything that we have with you guys safe to call it a bumper episode before it even gets started because uh listen man um it's been a young minute since uh we came at you with a full african take around the podcast family musa's been crazy with his startup business uh conference speaking schedule uh, uh, and the rest of the team here at the African Tech Roundup uh, have been working feverishly to make the most of our time at the Jam Lab Accelerator that we, we told you about uh, some weeks ago. But we hope you enjoyed the quick tech chat podcast that we put out. Uh, we've been publishing them just to hold you down, just so that you don't miss us a little too much. Uh, but listen, that's not the only reason we're excited. We're not excited because of what's going down and we're going to check in on that. We're going to find out what's trending uh, in Musa's life. Uh, as they say in in TV land and that's not all folks we have a special guest in the building and uh, I'm going to introduce him by sharing his Twitter bio which I think should give you a sense of just how busy this man stays or keeps himself he is a mechanical engineer a pre-racial thought leader a bitcoin and blockchain enthusiast freedom insurrectionist troublemaker serial entrepreneur aviator and I'm actually not sure what some of all of that means, but we will we'll find out as part of this episode. He'll definitely need to explain all that and some of those things a little later on. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. Sinclair Skinner. Welcome, sir. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. You know, just from going for hearing you and actually being here is like kind of crazy. So thank you. You guys, if you follow us really closely on social media, you'll have known that uh, Sinclair and I actually connected uh, probably a year ago and, and I shared it on, on Instagram. I shared like hot takes from that conversation with like my whole family, my wife knows you. Like it's just such an honor to have you here and um, yeah, what can I say but welcome man. Now before we take full advantage of you being here, um, uh, we'll get you to share what's trending in your world, you know, clarify some of the items in that bio I just read out. Um, but before we, we do that and tear into some of the more notable tech and innovation happenings uh, to go down over the past couple of weeks, let's do this. This episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by the brand spanking new VC for Africa Startup Academy, which I'm very pleased to say I had a little hand in helping put together. Yep, you'll see a lot of yours truly uh, presenting some of that content. But that's hardly the point, folks. The reason we're excited about it is because the Academy offers direct access to expertise proven to work for successful entrepreneurs and investors operating on the continent right now. Now, if you're a founder, you'd be crazy not to take full advantage of this resource to take your business to the next level. All you need to do is head straight to vcforafrica.com forward slash academy. That's VC, the number four, Africa com forward slash academy to download useful tools and take in advice from no less than 35 experts who are currently active in our emerging African startup ecosystem. Now, the first course in the series is called Start Your Business. There are a number of modules in that course, as well as the next one called Grow Your Business and a third one called Finance Your Business. It's not an exhaustive list of everything you need to know, but it's definitely a great place to start. Register now. The address again, bc, the number four, africa.com forward slash academy.
I want to start by letting our listeners get to know you a little better, Sinclair. Musa, they know fairly well at this point. He's he's become part of the furniture, thankfully. But please explain some of the items in your Twitter bio. I mean, mechanical engineer, I get. Pre-racial thought leader. Okay, let's start there. Like, what's that about? Well, I, I think some of this comes from um, after our President Obama. You know, we were able to elect the first uh, African president of a majority uh, European country. I think that's amazing. But what it made us also look back at is when the world was actually ran by African people. So oftentimes, and I think Elon Musk talks about first principles. When we discuss where we are in Africa, we, we normally go back 10 years or 50 years or 100 years. But in reality, if we go back, we were in 2017, if we went back to zero, we, you would say that the, the most civilized, most amazing civilizations on the planet would probably be in Africa. They still haven't built anything like Great Zimbabwe in, in Europe, meaning a building that could stand that long without cement. I mean, the Leaning Tower of Pisa is leaning, actually. So it, that was a failure. So, you know, not just the pyramids, but there's also been amazing things that we did prior to uh, colonialism and all these other negative effects. So when I talk about who we are as a people, I hearken back to a time before we were going through these situations. So our catchphrase of, of our startup is decolonize your life, what did Africa look like when we actually had control and sovereignty over our world? We were pretty amazing. So when I start talking about who we are and in the context of today, I don't use how we were just 100 years ago. I try to say, look, there is a time when these things weren't like that. And we were able to engage each other. People didn't necessarily have to colonize each other to exchange value. Um, I mean, fundamentally, you look at colonialism in this predatorial model, it, it fundamentally doesn't want to compensate everybody in the value chain. At the end of the day, that's probably a very problematic capitalism and very unsustainable. But we've actually seen models of the world that pre-existed that didn't have that as their way of the exchange, even uh, as Africans traveled to Asia and to Americas. We didn't colonize those folks. We didn't proselytize those folks. So even, you know, you look at our traditional worship, traditional spirituality, there's no book connected to it. It's actual science connected to the real nature of our spirit and the natural phenomenon that we experience. And these folks were able to build buildings with no cement and pyramids. So they had a connection that was pretty awesome and innovative. And now we fast forward now, and we're now trying to undo some of the 500 years that we've experienced. So when I say pre-racial thought leader, I'm saying that we need to go to first principles like Elon Musk would say and actually deconstruct how did we get here. So I can totally see how the DNA of what you've said or how what you've said resides in the DNA of something like bitmari.com, which is, which is your startup. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So thank you so much for laying the groundwork. I, I'm sure people have guessed by your accent that you are American. I suppose you're African before you're everything else. But uh, So where are you from? Where are you talking from? Well, uh, I've lived all over the United States. My dad was in the military, but uh, my base of uh, operations is Washington, D.C. I was actually born in Montana, which is a very far-flung state in America. I don't think of black people when I think of Montana. I don't know about you, Musa. <laughs> no, not at all. I think of very unhappy black people. <laughs> here, here. So I, you, my, my dad was in the military, so we did move around a lot. And at the end of the day, uh, I went to school at Howard University. Well, Tuskegee and Howard University, two historically black universities. And I stayed there in D.C. 
I want to ask a question about that because I've heard a lot of people speak about Howard University, especially in the context of education. Um, and I, I'm schooled here and I went to school on the African continent, but there's, uh, there's kind of an allure about you know, Ivy League and Ivy League in the context of African education. Um, what was your experience there like? I mean, was there a kind of a consciousness around what you were being taught? Was there a deliberate uh, um, educational drive around this concept that you've been speaking about around decolonization? And what was your experience at, at Howard like? You know, we look at uh, the father of uh, you know African nationalism. If you look at like a, a Kwame Nkrumah, he went to Lincoln University, which is a historically black college. I think some of the the original leaders in Nigeria went to Howard University. I think as African Americans, as a part of the greater diaspora that we're all a part of, stopping that from happening was what somebody figured out. Like we keep allowing African students to come engage with African American students, this thing might turn out really hectic. So if you look through this, the civil rights movements and some of the the black liberation movements, there was a, a healthy engagement of of African indigenous African people who were expats in at uh, African American universities. Now you fast forward now. You know, there, I've met students from the continent who go to school in New Hampshire, North Dakota. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm, I'm picking up what they're putting down as the State Department. They're like, look, there's no coincidence that we as Africans in this diaspora aren't engaging each other. I think it's, if you look at the freedom struggles for the last 200 years, though, there's been engagement between African-Americans from Booker T. Washington and ANC. There's been real, like, you know, activism but, you know, Marcus Garvey. But now you see a lot of that being, that energy pushed in another direction. I think the Howard Universities, the Tuskegee's, the Morehouse's, the North Carolina Antes, the countless universities, I still think you have a great orientation. And I think the Ivy League school, the lie about the Ivy League schools is, is not me saying this, but if we look at the, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Steve Jobs, these guys didn't even finish their university. So if, the, if it was really going to get a degree from that university, then you would actually have to tell me those guys got a degree. They didn't. Well, if it was a class that they took, then everybody should just take that class. Well, it's not a class they took. I think what it really boils down to is they're selecting certain people who already are predetermined with, with their backgrounds to have certain advantages and, and abilities, and those people, without graduating from them schools, move on. At historically black colleges, it allows you one of the unique opportunities to be around other you know, um, ambitious, uh, intellectual black folks at your age group where you can come together. So when we start looking at some of the, the breakthroughs and some of your relationships, you know quickly that later in life, most of your advantages are taken from the folks you went to school with. Your first opportunity might be a total stranger, but when you start looking at as you're advancing in your career, most of that is coming from a, a relationship circle that started off either at a university level or your hometown. And I think in many ways, historically black colleges create a very nurturing environment to allow us to be who we are and explore because blackness is not a small thing it's a huge thing so you know to be in an environment where you're you're accepted to be as you are i was a student government president at my university well i didn't have to deal with was this a racial thing it was, all my peers looked like me if they didn't want me to be the president they would said no as a matter of fact i ran twice the first time i did said no so i did say no <laughs> oh dang are you still friends with him <laughs> yeah I, still ran. I ran again what but my point is I had the experience at a young age to be a leader. Oftentimes you go to these schools like these Ivy League schools, not because these young brothers from the continent or even African-Americans aren't talented, but they're in a system that does not respect or value black excellence. So you may never be president. Now, someone like George Bush who was very dumb and not very talented. 
Well, what he was able to do because of his birthright and, and racism, he was able to assume positions of authority and responsibility. So even if you're 10 times smarter than him, he knows how to run a board meeting. Now, that's, those are just tangible skills that you get if you're in a system that's advocating for you. I think historically black universities advocate in a way that's very different from those universities. And they're open, I say historically black, but they're probably the most diverse universities that we've ever had because even during our, our apartheid, you know, we had whites, we had Asians. You could actually go to the school and not suffer the, the actual Jim Crow laws that were so harmful. Yeah, I watched the Vice News piece on just how uh, actually uh, embracing off diversity in reverse in a way that these historically black universities are. And it was something that you said that made me think how, how much we take for granted being on the continent. You're looking around in almost any direction, and I say this carefully for those of us who spend a lot of time in places like Santon, and being able to see ourselves represented in, quite frankly, just you know the, the people around us. If you're in a place where you are by default a minority, you are a repressed minority, you, you have systems that are are quite frankly geared up to maintain that position for you and others of who, who are like you, I think you can't help but sort of just rebel against it. I, I, I can't see any difference unless, I don't know, unless they slip something in your Kool-Aid and, you know, and, and you, you sleep on it. No, I think what happens is you get seduced. I think what happens is if you get enough goodies, you can be quiet. I think the thing that happened with me, I was able to maintain... I wouldn't say outrage, but I was able to maintain a level of activism and be successful in business and be successful in politics. What folks who were more courageous than me, who actually advocated more and more deeply than I did for our, our plight as a people, many of them didn't figure out how to get the resources and bad things happen to them. And they get frustrated and they, some of them end up, quote unquote, selling out after they go through all that. In my situation, I was able to stay true to to uh, what my belief systems were and actually benefit and able to be able to travel back and forth to Africa to, to do business with those people I choose to do business with. And I think in, in trying to empower folks, I think you're trying to get people to be courageous and also be able to understand how to create something sustainable. So I don't think NGOs work. I don't think, you know, the form of capitalism that, that I, I ascribe to, I think, is, is an incomplete form, and we need to stop trying to choose between socialism, capitalism. These are all antiquated old isms. We have enough, you know, brilliant fit folks. We should create a new model. It's hybrids. Well, but something maybe that no one's ever thought about. We should come up with something so crazy. Or study our, ourselves. Like, again, you know, we always talk about as African Americans, our reparations, our labor was stolen. But being in Zimbabwe, particularly where they have people have totems and stuff, I realized they took something more, you know, more priceless than than my labor of my ancestors that I should have been able to inherit. They actually stole our identity. They actually stole my culture. Like I'll never know who I really am. My last name is Skinner. I don't look like a Skinner. So my point is, I think is upon indigenous Africans to take the cultural intellect that they've been able to maintain because they kept their languages, been able to keep some of these norms and use that insight to inform us how best to move forward. Because what we've learned from the European has been very toxic. So I think there's got to be an alternative, just like people use alternative Asian methodology. We create this mystique about everybody else's mysticism, but when it comes to our mysticism, it's somehow we berate it. But there's some real genius in those people who are able to build buildings with no bricks, I mean, with no cement, and build pyramids and all, everything else. And I think in a real way, 
I think it's going to be indigenous Africans that lead us out of this situation with that cultural understanding. And as African-Americans, I think we can participate too because we got a role because I think my engagement with Europeans is very different from a, a, a indigenous African. I grew up with white folks. I mean, I, I didn't know what a Jew was until another white person said, that's y'all always white to us. We didn't know who was who. I didn't know what Italian was. So again, you know, I grew up in a situation in America where black folks had been there before a lot of the white folks came. So it was not, I'm not, I'm nowhere near an immigrant. I've been here, you know, I, I showed you the ropes. You came through my neighborhood to get to your neighborhood. So I think there's a vantage point that we have of this system that's important as African-Americans. I think sometimes Africans, we, we misunderstand what happened to the Americas. For 500 years, Terrible things happened to Africa, but terrible things that happened to the Americas. Genocide was, was committed in North America and in many parts of South America. At least you guys still kept your name and your identity. Spanish is not what they speak in South America. That is a European language. So there's so many people who don't even know anything related to their culture. You still have your language. Whatever they take, they can never tell you how to speak Shona, Debele, Zulu, Nkosa, Kukuyu. They can't. So there's some things that you guys have been able to keep and fight for that I think when we start looking at the next 50 years, we got to put those things in play because there's a reason why those things survive and we need to leverage them. And so a quick shout out to everybody who's leveraging everything you've just talked about you know, to walk the road less traveled. I bamboozled uh, Musa some months ago when, when I had him on the couch for one of our live, you know, our African Tech Roundup live sessions. He, he was like one of our, our guest sort of interviews. And I, you know, confessed to him that uh, he, he went entrepreneur and then went, went corporate. He, had, he inhabited these really responsible positions, you know, in, in, in banking. He, he ended up at Facebook at some point. I was really hurt by that, you know. <laughs> and then something else happened when he left all that, to do what he's doing now, which is incredibly inspiring. And to see him, that, not that I lost him or that he was any less of a man or anything like that, because he did great work and, and all that, you know, that experience was leverageable. But listening to you talk like that makes me realize what's at stake if we choose to do the easy thing, you know, which is, okay, uh, Andiles, you know, speaks, you know, great English, has lived uh, in, in many places around the world, is a second generation professional, um, and really gets to choose what he does with his life. And, and it's really easy to make a choice for the easiest thing possible to keep yourself as comfortable as possible. Yeah. So Musa, again, brah, I love where you're at right now, man. <laughs> Look, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting that you mentioned, and there's so much in what you're saying. I mean, we could sit here and chat all afternoon. But one of the moments where I, uh, when, when I was working at Facebook, um, one, of the, one of the key moments I realized that I had to leave was actually when we got together the, for the first time, they arranged um, kind of a Black Leadership Day. I don't know if they remember the saga around Black Lives Matter at the time. And someone in one of our canteens actually scratched out black and you know made it all lives matter. So it became a big thing internally for the business uh, because a progressive business like that, you know, it was worrying that people thought about the world in such an isolated and, and ignorant way. Um, so they invited all the black leaders at that time to, to, to Menlo Park and they said, let's have this conversation and let's try and kind of get together and create or forge or whatever it may be. So I went and I, I went with really high expectations. Um, I went there and I thought to myself, wow, there's 300 odd of us that are sitting in this room who are black or identify with being black and we talking, we need to be talking about real issues. Um, and I remember very clearly that when I left there, I was so underwhelmed because the nature of the conversation was almost 
cool we've kind of made it now how do we how do we stay here you know what i'm saying there was nothing about how do we how do we change things in the system that made it okay that there's only 300 of us sitting here how do we make sure that we're investing in in, in the pipeline that's going to have a thousand of us sitting here? you know that was not the narrative the narrative was like we are family you know let's let me make sure i help you stay in your job let's you know let, and i was just like that is super irresponsible now granted it was the first time we'd gotten together as black people in in a business like that which i can't discount but for me that's when the penny dropped. And and when I decided to leave, I thought, if I'm going to play this game, I'm going to end up being one of those guys that sits here and has a great job, um, works for an American business, and you know I won't complain about anything, won't want for anything. But I'll be watching from the sidelines. I'll be sitting there, kind of commenting and having you know these big, wonderful uh, ideals about changing the world. And if I don't get my hands dirty, roll up my sleeves, then I'm going to be accountable to my grandchildren who are going to be like, "What did you do when you had the opportunity?" And we can't afford that. We really cannot afford that. There are great examples right now, and and and, and you should have a look at it. There's a there's a kinship called uh, the Buffalo King Nation which is a great example of hanging on to your culture, but also very much being a modern um, dynasty. So the Buffalo Nation are the wealthiest tribe in Africa, um, run out of the Northwest here in Johannesburg. Um, the king is, is a CEO at the same time. They've got investment holdings. They've got the whole nine yards, but they've managed to get this kind of, you know, balance how you run and govern in the Western context with making sure you don't lose the ideals of a, of a literally a village. Um, so every month, he literally, as a CEO, goes and sits on a mat and people can come and ask him questions, literally. And they can question why are things happening the way they are? Uh, why are the roads in the state they are? Why did you make this decision? And he has to account to them. And that is a core principle of Africanness that we've just lost because we've now gotten to these great business schools that tell us, you know, there's an autonomous leader who sits at the top and he waves his wand and things happen. Um, and, you know, forget what happens to the minions around him. So I, I love what you've been saying because that is so core to a lot of what we've been speaking about, even in how um, we are so responsible and we don't really realize it, right? Some people have to come and remind us just how responsible we are um, but we have to own it otherwise it's going to be you know it's going to be too late very soon you know the perfect segue to just talking about what's trending in our lives and i love that all three of us can do that right because that what a privilege it is that we get to like just trade notes on like what we're pushing and what we're trying to do and how we're trying to push everything we talked about forward in terms of like you know our sense of dignity as men as as africans but also just the, the understanding how important it is for us to assert ourselves on the global stage. I love that. That me with my little mic here and, and the, uh, leading the aspirations and the charge for African Tech Roundup as a platform, I get to be here and go, you know, guys, I'm just so excited about what we're doing in this accelerator and the products that are about to come online. Like, look out. And then, and then Musa, before you came here, and heads up, everyone, Musa's going to need to duck because the man has got... An investor meet. No, no, no. I'm not talking about some guy who wants to hear what he's doing. Or so, some, some friend of a friend. I'm talking about like real money that is like, um, I, I'm thinking about throwing some millions at this thing. And, 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 and Musa has got to meet that person. So we will happily let you go, my brother. Well, and this conversation will carry. We'll happy. But before you do, like, tell us what's up. I know you've made so much progress since, you know, we told people you, that you left Facebook to start a venture it was really vague at first you had you threw some names out there you couldn't tell us all but it's okay so tell the people bruh yeah so we're building a business called bridge labs which is uh, going to be the brightest african minds solving um, the most complex challenges for who we call the digitally invisible economy um, so we're really passionate about the long tail of any um, of any market and any industry and we we're focusing primarily in two areas ed tech um, so we've built an education technology platform so all of you can go check it out if you're a teacher if you're a knowledge merchant 
merchant, if you're a corporate who wants to get really good at training your people, um, check out clock.education. So that's gone live. Um, and then the next platform, which I'll come share some news on, is uh, is the advertising technology platform for small businesses. So it's all coming together nicely. There's a lot going on at the moment, but uh, we're assembling a superstar team. Um, we've just recently employed our head of AI, who's a 33-year-old professor um, at uh, University of Johannesburg. Brilliant Nigerian guy. He's written books. He's done the entire thing. Um, I'm just so proud like of the team we've assembled. Um, so we're literally going into sprint mode in the next two days, which is super exciting. So I'll keep you guys informed. But yeah, things are moving, man. Things are moving. And as I said, I'm pregnant with expectation, man. It's going to happen. It's gonna That's happen. literally what he said when he walked in the room. He's like, dude, I'm, pre- like, dude, I'm pregnant, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth, man. It's the truth. It's all coming together. Yeah. So we have, to, we have to own it. We have to really own it. <laughs> so, dude, okay. So off you go. I, he'll be packing away. Um, I'm unplugging him. Um, apparent, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a VC meeting happening in New York about his business right now as we speak. I'm just excited for my brother. Musa, thanks for making it. I know you, you, know, you have to rush off, but I'm, I'm, you go. All right. So, Sinclair, we just carry on, man. Um, what's trending in your life? I know uh, you're in Africa for a purpose. Um, look, I mean, there are many good reasons to come even just to, to chill out and just find yourself or re-find yourself or reconnect or whatever. But I know you're, you're a man on a mission right now. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about where you're at. I referenced briefly bitmari.com and a little birdie tells me that's what brought you into town because there's, there's something on the go. Tell us about it, man. Yeah, so we, we just did a, a soft a soft launch of our uh, Bitcoin remittance uh, platform in Zimbabwe. Uh, we partnered with uh, AgriBank, uh, the second largest state-owned bank in Zimbabwe, and we are focusing on the U.S. to Zimbabwe corridor initially. And uh, we now, in a real way, a person anywhere in the world with Bitcoin actually can send money to someone in Zimbabwe and they can cash out at a uh, agribank teller and pretty soon they'll be able to use EcoCash or any number of the uh, mobile uh, platforms also. So Bitcoin has been the big thing that continuously brought me back and forth. And, you know, when the value of Bitcoin goes up, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people super excited. And then, you know, recently Jamie Dimon said some things about Bitcoin. I think uh, just with any technology, there's going to be ups and downs. But I think uh, cryptocurrency, uh, blockchain technology is here to stay. And it's, a, it's in our interest to, to make sure we figure out how to use it uh, to empower ourselves. And I think it's not just the value of Bitcoin. So many people f- focus on the volatility of that. But using Bitcoin as a uh, platform, a payment platform, I've gone to many conferences where it seems like you have some of the same original players trying to recarve up Africa using you know, now modern tactics. If we don't have folks who really are concerned about liberation, really concerned about, you know, the self-determination of Africa, leveraging these technologies, we'll, we'll find ourselves recolonized using blockchain or any of these other, uh, you know, new latest AI. I mean, we talk about artificial intelligence. Now we're saying that we actually can teach computers to be racist. I mean, that that can be problematic. And if we're not in the room where these decisions are being made or are we coming up with alternatives that end up being better than those that are being offered now, we're in a situation where we're going to have fewer options. But I think most of these technologies are early enough and most of our problems are real enough that we can make the connection between both of them and come up with some pretty awesome ideas. We've said a, a lot on the show quite often that there is a huge difference between access and inclusion when it comes to financial services and really what so many people at conferences 
you know, put out there in terms of, oh, you know, the next frontier is making sure that, you know, Africa, Africans come online in terms of participating more actively with, in terms of economic participation, that kind of thing. But access and inclusion, not the same thing. Tell me why Zimbabwe, because we also have said many times on the, on, on the show that to our minds, Zimbabwe represents possibly the world's best possible use case for what Bitcoin can do to democratize the economy. I think uh, Zimbabwe is amazing for so many reasons. I've I've probably traveled to a little less than 50 countries in my life. And every place I've gone, the people that look like me seem to be at the bottom. And Zimbabwe is probably one of the few places I've gone where black people truly have sovereignty. At the end of the day, whatever we we say uh, about politics or governments i mean again i'm i'm not really i really don't like politics at all you know and i've had a, enough experience with to say it but at the end of the day sovereignty i think is the best tool for development so even a country like cuba where my country my government has done so many things to try to undermine and destroy that com- that country because of their sovereignty because of their dedication to the betterment of their own country they have incredible doctors they have incredible education well, if you just look at next door Dominican Republic or, or Haiti or even Latin American countries like uh, El Salvador, all those countries have been controlled by American companies and they end up just being client states of, of, of America. Cuba is the only one with true self-determination where they actually make policies that are not dictated by, the, by Washington, D.C. or London, but dictated right there in Havana locally. I think in Zimbabwe's case, it's the same thing. There's there's a real amazing, um, from the, the CEO down to the person sweeping the floor, you have a, a, a sense of self that I don't see in other African countries and I definitely don't see in America. Oftentimes we look at, as African-Americans, we look at our communities and there's a certain level of poverty. But then if you start really pulling back the layers in the so-called African-American communities in America, we don't own the, the businesses, we don't own the land, you know, the schools are actually being governed by someone else. So even in even if all the faces look like us, if the infrastructure and the systems aren't controlled by us, I don't think that's self-determination. I don't think that's sovereignty. I think Zimbabwe, with all its uh, issues as far as economically, they, what they've been able to do is create a country that's been able to provide some of the most brilliant professional class for so many African countries in the region. I think in Zimbabwe, they export brains. And so I, I, it takes a certain level of dedication to the fundamental things to do that. Now, again, like I said, I, I think all these political systems have problems. And I think one of the things that Zimbabwe did that was amazing in 2009 with their cash crisis is they came up with a, a multi-currency regime. Again, in America, we had a crisis. This is why when people talk about Zimbabwe, I say, well, look, they have crisis, but we've had crises in Greece. We have crisis in all the, Argentina. All these places have a crisis. Why, if we want to say crisis, why is it always just Zimbabwe with a crisis? Well, in America, we had a crisis, and instead of doing something transformational, we bailed out the banks. Well, in Zimbabwe, they actually said, you know what? We've printed too much of this currency. We're going to open it up to the RAND, the Pula, the Quacha. We're going to have a multi-currency regime where really like an international economy. So their level of adoption, and in Zimbabwe, a 10-year-old child can tell you the difference between 100 RAND and $100. Now, I had to go to college to figure out 4X. But so you, you have a level of uh, genius uh, or brilliance and resourcefulness in Zimbabwe that I think is very different. And another thing is when doing business in countries like in Africa, 
is as African American, we're very ignorant about how the rest of the world looks and works. We think because everybody's black that maybe these countries are are being ran by the people that we're talking to. But if you go to a francophone country, many of the policies are being made in in Paris. You go to an anglophone country, many of the policies are being made in London. So you could be talking to some big CEO and he's telling you all the great things he thinks this is oh we want to work with you, but he's got to go ask somebody else if this is okay. So, you know, and I don't have anything as a Safaricom and all these other ventures out here where Vodafone really is in control of these entities. So when it comes to something like Bitcoin, you know, there's been a resistance from some of these mainstream players to to using Bitcoin. But what uh, we were able to develop in, in our relationship in Zimbabwe were local indigenous financial institutions who wanted access to te technology that would give them the power to do some things that they never thought they would be able to do anytime soon. And by bringing them the access to this incredible blockchain technology, Bitcoin, we were able to empower them. So we're not waiting to uh, do a deal with Barclays. Now, we're clear how Barclays and Stanbeck and all these, these banks got their resources. They got their resources from exploiting and killing and stealing from Africa. So I don't, I don't think their 2.0 version is much different than that. They just might be a little more kinder and gentler. But if we're really talking about transformational technology being used to help the folks that are on the ground, I think it is going to be a country where they have more sovereignty and control of that. And even to your po point about inclusion, at the end of the day, the model that we're using to talk about Africa too often is done through a, a Euro European neocolonialist lens. Some of these things that we're being that's being discussed is not really about how do we help Africa. It's really about how do we maintain control of Africa as a client state in general. Well, again, you know, if my great grandmama doesn't have a phone in the rural area, she still got a phone if I got a phone. So I think sometimes we analyze or use uh, statistics that are based on a Eurocentric model, but not based on the the norms and the cultural uh, uh, information that we have about ourselves. And again, in, in our company, Bitmari, we say that we don't want to sacrifice technical competency, nor do we want to sacrifice cultural competency. We want to leverage both of those things to create an amazing uh, business that it will be able to sustain itself in any place and doing anything. So in many ways, I think if we stop using a Eurocentric context to evaluate what it needs to be done in, in, on the continent and start using some of the tr traditional methods that we had you know, you know, hundreds of years before uh, a colonialism, I think we'll come up with better uh, metrics, we'll come up with better solutions, and let Europeans be the best Europeans, we'll let the Chinese be the best Chinese, and we'll be the best African people that we, we're supposed to be. African culture, I often say, is not understood, it's absorbed. Like, so, so speak to someone who kind of craves what I can definitely tell you've got, which is you're becoming, to some, to some extent, saturated with an appreciation for much more than an appreciation but you 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 you've absorbed a lot about what makes africa work or what makes africa special what's great about africa how, how do you get there now i think some of it is just being again as a being african american my name is sinclair skinner so f fundamentally I, you know my identity has been stolen my culture has been stolen 
So I think I have a, an appreciation for something because I don't have it. I think when I meet indigenous African folks who already have a totem, they already have a name, they have a surname that connects back to a, a whole bunch of history, even the, the word African. Most people, if they shown it, they call themselves shown it. They debellate, they call them, but they didn't call themselves African. So in a real way, you know, the best I can do is come up as African American. But, but then from there, how do you start to deconstruct what happened to you? And I think uh, the pain uh, uh, psychologically and emotionally that you start to face as you start to realize what happened to me, like what happened to my great-great-grandmother, what happened to my grandfather, these things are pretty terrible. Where can I go to, to, to talk to some folks who've gone through a different experience and were able to retain their names, retain their language, retain a certain level of their culture? And then from there, you really start getting an appreciation that the things that I'm doing are coming from a culture that's really foreign to who I am as a person. You know, when we look at America, again, you know, we don't talk about the fact that this really is a place where genocide was, was conducted on a whole group of people who didn't deserve it to happen to them. Australia the same way. And they try to do that in Southern Africa in a lot of ways. But with that being said, how do you deconstruct that? How do I now re-put myself back together? What I've spent the last probably 10 to 15 years doing is traveling as much as I can and talking to folks, you know, asking real questions like, what does your name mean? And why is this? And then if something happens to, to your father, you call your, your uncle Baba already, so that's your father. Well, we say uncle. What is uncle? I mean, this is these, these arbitrary terms. And, and then even my name being Skinner, like, what is that? Who came up with that? That's a profession. And if you start studying European history, you start to realize that they don't have totems. That their names are, are vocations or jobs, carpenter, thatcher. Well, as Africans, that, that would be almost ridiculous. If you even look like a Leonardo da Vinci, that's, his name is really not a name. His name is Leonard of Vinci. If he moved to Florence, he would have been Leonardo de Florence. Now, how can you change your identity just by moving? But if you look at it in the African context, there's a level of sophistication in, in, in civil civility that, that transcends anything that's currently in Europe. Let me say it another way. You couldn't be a savage if you, you spent that much detail on determining what this name means. You can't eat this particular food. You can't marry that particular person. That's a very sophisticated society that's, that's been able to feed, clothe, and shelter itself very well to the point now they go into another hierarchy of needs. So in a real way, as I started seeing the intelligence and brilliance of, of our people, it made me start to try to figure out, then if this is the truth, why, why are these lies? And then it goes back to what, you know, what we've seen. When, when we were being colonized by Europeans or Arabs, they, they would tell a lie. Oh, we're doing this to civilized folks. Well, then why are you raping and killing and stealing? This is kind of odd. Well, now we fast forward. That's 500 years ago. Now we fast forward today. Are the same things going on? Are we now the collaborators that we talked about that must have collaborated with the original colonizer? Are we now normalizing our oppression? Are we saying that this stuff that we're seeing is somehow reasonable? When, it's, when I'm trying to get someone to come to the United States and just trying to go through uh, uh, getting their visa, they're getting turned down. I'm like, wait a minute, when I come to Africa, I don't even get asked for a visa, or I can do a visa in transit. What system's in place that means that that human being is not valuable or not worthy to come to America, but all their resources and diamonds and gold can come with no problem? How come that person who's amazing 
never did anything to anybody. Why would they have to be humiliated? They got to bring their taxes and bring their car statements. This ain't right. And, and so when you start really seeing this is playing out in your face, you're an adult in the room, you, you start to say, you know what, we got to do something about this. And this is just the stuff that we can see. The people listening to the show right now, because at least two thirds of our audience is now abroad. Um, the UK, shout out to you guys. Uh, you've actually surpassed Kenya as our third largest listening, listening region. And I know some of you are thinking, wait, I thought this was a tech podcast. Like, where, you know, where's all the tech? I'm waiting for the news. Well, here's the thing. There seems to be quite a, quite a great deal of concerted effort to divorce a lot of the stuff that I heard Sinclair say from the realities of how business is done here on the continent, who it serves, by whom it's done. And it really bugs me. And, and part of the reason we exist um, there are easier ways to, to carve out a niche in, in broadcasting, I can assure you. But the part of the reason we exist is because there's a ton of misinformation that doesn't serve Africa. There's a ton, ton of oversimplification in terms of business sense, in terms of, in terms of values that constantly permeates the way outsiders engage with us here and assume the, the right to represent our interests abroad. And really, this is partly why it's really important that there be a seamless weaving of these discussion points in and alongside things that seem quite well apparently divorced from what it takes to actually run a successful startup in South Africa in, in, in any part of the, the continent, really. And so in case you thought you were lost, you're not. We're just coloring in. <laughs> we're just giving you context, and it's really important. And... With that said, let's dive into some things. I thought, you know, being that you are in the fintech space, we'd we'd list some of the more you know prominent things that have happened in the last couple of weeks. Um, Easy Equities, uh, a fractional investment company here in South Africa, hasn't been profitable, but uh, Sunlam, one of the the largest insurers in the country, buying a thirty percent stake uh, in that business, uh, no doubt to keep you know to give them runway to figure out. A, sustain, a sustainable business model. It's being held as, as as moving the needle for financial inclusion. Certainly, I have to I have to give credit where it's due. There's certainly many more South Africans who are now participating in the stock market than they were before, thanks to this business. Um, but again, I think we need to factor in some of what we've been discussing so far. Is are we really winning? What does winning look like? Here's another thing, and I, and I'll rope you in, Sinclair, just to give me a sense of what you think. Uh, there's Bitpesa, which is uh, really a competitor of yours, uh, born in Kenya. We have an expat founder, female founder, quite notably. They've followed up their, their Series A, and I think they closed earlier in the year. They're now sitting at about $10 million worth of investment. This latest tranche led by Greycroft Partners, they pretty much run out of Europe at this point, um, I'm reliably informed. And, and yeah, I guess, again, it could be argued they're part of this trend towards the democratization of financial services. I have a simple question. When are you getting that money, bro? First of all, I would say BitPesa is not a competitor of BitMari. The trick part about the Bitcoin space is that every business that's in Bitcoin actually helps because as long as they don't do anything like Silk Road or something crazy, it makes it easier for folks to see that as a success. And by them having non-African founders, which is problematic from the sovereignty space, 
But what it does do is when you see people invest money into their operations, which are based in Africa, it does create a track record that one can point to to say, hey, here's a company that's operating in this very similar space as we are. This is what they've been able to do. We should be able to do something similar based on the marketplace that we're in. Because in Silicon Valley, you know, Menlo Park, Mountain View, there's a lot of ignorance around Africa. So when you can have somebody like the folks in BitPesa uh, ha have the face of what they're doing and be accepted, it does make it easier for other Bitcoin companies in uh, developing markets. Now, as it relates to when are we going to get the money, we're probably not going to get the money the same way they would get the money. My co-founder is, is an indigenous Zimbabwean. I'm African-American. With that being said, you know, I think um, we've learned a lot from other companies. You know, one of the things that we learned from BitPesa was when they started having problems with uh, the Kenyan government, it, it informed us in a real way to say that whatever we do, we're probably going to have to go through the steps of making sure we secure a good partner uh, with the government. So again, you know, being a startup is already hard. So we've learned a lot from BitPesa in that regard. But I think there's definitely a bias towards uh, indigenous-founded uh, uh, African startups. And when I see, you know, I, I was in Kenya, they had a guy called the White African. I mean, it was like very bizarre stuff that is African-American when you hear, you're like, a white African, what is that? Is that like a black European? That's just a bizarre thing. But these are things that are being created to allow people certain access that typically wouldn't, or validation that you wouldn't see on the reverse side as an as a African person in, uh, in Europe. You know, there's nobody known as the black European who's getting super access. So I think in a real way, uh, we're going to have to figure this out with our allies as well as with ourselves. We're right now in the middle of a seed round. Uh, we're raising a half a million dollars uh, in our seed round. And we've raised about a about a quarter of a million dollars so far. And most of that money has come from uh, African-Americans. So, you know, African-Americans since 2015 have been spending over a trillion dollars a year. And almost none of that money is being spent on African-American business or African business. We see uh, as Bitmari, we think that that's a part of our thesis, that we can actually bridge not Africa as a continent, Africa as a diaspora, and we already have the talent, we already have the resources, we already have the ability, to, the resourcefulness, and the plenty of problems that need to be solved. We just need to reorient ourselves. Some of the things that we said initially in this, in this podcast are centered around, with the right orientation, we do already have all the things and tools that we need. We just gotta put them into action. And with Brother Musa, what other bro brothers and sisters are doing, and I do say sisters for a reason, I think the, the real secret sauce is the, the indigenous African woman. I mean, I think the resourcefulness of the African woman, the, the, the nurturing, the, the, just the, you know, the disposition in business I've seen African, Amer African uh, women have, and just not the opportunity to show it, it's, it's been amazing. And I and we do study African culture with this a matriarchal, you know, theme that predated the, the colonializing of Africa. And so I think in many ways, uh, if we leverage our cultural uh, awareness as one of our tools 
along with our technical abilities, I think we're going to help the world, not just Africa, we're going to help the world get out of this toxic cycle of, you know, more of this energy being used to basically, you know, you know, more drones to kill people, more pollution to kill people, more GMOs to kill people. We can come up with a world that's not like that, but we're going to have to lead it. We, we can't be better Europeans. We got to be the best Africans we can be. And the Asians, the Chinese got to be the best Chinese. But we have a role to play and we got to step. No one else is going to do it for us. At the end of the day, a liar is not going to stop lying. You're going to just have to stop believing and listen to that stuff. So in many ways, I think it's, it's not, you know, we're the ones that allow these things to happen. I've been to conferences where people say things in, in our faces that are very disrespectful of, of African people, and we sit there and let it happen. Now, I'm just telling you, if you allow somebody to disrespect you, they're going to disrespect you again. And that's in business, that's socially. So we, as African people, have to, you know, show our real integrity and show some courage and say, look, not only in, in the interest of Africa, in the interest of the world, we got we to gotta change the way we do business and we got to change the way we do technology. And I think, again, indigenous African people have the best position to do it because of, of the cultural intelligence they still have been able to maintain that the, the indigenous Africans, I mean, Americans don't, don't have, the indigenous Australians didn't get to keep Africans are the people that after all this colonialism took place, they still re retain their identity. And some of them even retain their sovereignty. We have to use what we've been able to fight to keep in order to, to get this world back on path. I think the greatest indictment is that we are the largest proponent, by we, I mean us as Africans, we are the largest proponents of investor bias, I think is basically what it is. And you know, we, we get mail from, from you guys all the time. Well, what are you saying? Don't you want outsiders? Of course, surely are you, are you, are you like a, a populist? No, I, I just think it's worth um, identifying where all our blind spots are in terms of investor bias. I am not so naive as to think we could eliminate it. I trust in the goodwill of enough people, African and otherwise, to believe that they understand the importance of calling it out when we see it and doing our very best to, to, to act against it. And I'm speaking now mostly to us. And, and when I say us, I speak to Africa, I speak to um, brothers and sisters in the diaspora that we're holding progress up and we are promoting investor bias if we don't come right on this issue, man. If you look at China, you look at the, uh, you know, the Middle East, you know, in many ways, China still doesn't allow Facebook in. I mean, we look, we, 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 we let people have these crazy conversations with it. My dad was in the military and, and, and we fought communism. My dad was a Vietnam era vet, you know, but the, our biggest trade partner as the United States is, is a communist country that don't have elections, that doesn't have open free markets. So again, if you look at what China has been able to do, though, they were able to protect their culture. They were able to protect their economy. And people look at that as being powerful. If we say the same thing in Africa, somehow that's not being you know, receptive. I think Africa has more resources and more opportunities that people want. We have to make sure that the terms are fair. And that's the problem with Africa. They've, people have always wanted what, what we had in Africa, but never been willing to pay the fair rate. And again, fundamentally, colonialism is a form of capitalism where you have folks who are not willing to fairly compensate everyone in the value chain. 
Now, you don't have to kidnap me and rob my labor or steal my, my, my land. We actually could have a transaction. And if you don't have the money to pay me, give me some equity. But this colonial model that we're still living through in a neo or more advanced, technologically uh, sophisticated world is still based on a system where resources and, and opportunities are being extracted out of Africa without being fairly compensated. But when China does it, that's fine. When it's done in the Middle East a certain way, it's fine. When, when UK decides to do it, it's fine. But somehow in Africa, when I say, look, this is not going to happen this way. Some, for some reason, I, I don't have enough self-determination or, 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 or sovereignty to know what's best for my people. Well, I'm just thinking that if you're waiting for the folks who are taking advantage of you to change their ways, they're probably not. We're the ones who have to change these engagements. And again, I'm in Bitcoin. So when people start talking about money and the dollar and different currencies, at the end of the day, if all the currencies go away, Africa has more resources than anybody. So forget even digital currency. Africa is in a very strong position because there's no diamonds in Europe. So everybody needs Africa. So act like it. Be in a position where we're leveraging these relationships. And if we have to sacrifice like the freedom fighters did in order to get the best deal in the best situation, so be it. We've sacrificed before. This won't be new. No, no, no. All we want is free basics. That's all we want. And, um, and of course, renewable energy where Google owns like is well on its way to being one of the biggest players. They already own search and pretty much the Internet. And between them and Facebook, they'll probably own us in another five, ten years. But no, that's all we want. I mean, that's all we need. No, it's not. Let's talk about some billionaires. Uh, some of the wealthiest men in the, in, in, on the continent have made the headlines recently, uh, not least Aliko Dangote of Nigeria. Shout out to you, Nigeria, um, Africa's wealthiest man, giving us the heads up that by 2020, uh, I believe, you know, something like 2% of his wealth he expects will be uh, deployed abroad. There was a big furore around that revelation. Um, there's two ways I saw this. Um, one way is we are talking about a man who's probably contributed more than most in his position on the continent right now to actually building infrastructure that I think will be really important to Africa holding its own on the global stage. Uh, if you talk about Pristrakim, cement, of course, who is king on the continent, that kind of thing. Um, not too many moguls in his position willing to do the hard work to actually you know, create serious businesses in those spaces. Okay, so that's the one thing where it's like, okay, as an argument for this whole leapfrogging, Africa is in a position to leapfrog. Well, show me, show me how we leapfrog with no basic infrastructure in place. So shout out to you, Aliko Dangote, for being, for really just, you know, taking us there in terms of investing in our infrastructure and helping us do things that really most of us would rather, you know, outsource to the French or the Germans or whoever else is willing to do it. Then there's also this idea that this announcement brings us or might usher in uh, an era of Africa becoming a serious global player in terms of resource deployment and where currently we're all looking west and maybe a little bit east for all this money to come and save us. Um, people like him seem to understand that a time is coming when we will serve them. And on some level, I think that's a great aspiration to have for the continent. 
given that he's not a fan of technology and has, has said as much that he's, he's not interested in, in tech startups, etc. For that reason, I'm, I would give him a demerit. But what do you make of this, this whole thing? I've tried to put out what I think yeah, I, might be worth. I think infrastructure and colonialism, just to go back to my theme on the show, is they're hand in hand. If you look in America, you look in, in the continent, those that have been able to build on land, oftentimes that land was taken at a very low cost, or in America, it was actually just taken at no cost, and they were able to build on that land. I think what tech is, gives people the advantage is that we don't care about brick and mortar. We're able to take our incredible ideas and creativity and create and build and scale in a way that you could never scale in a brick and mortar space. And there's nothing more brick and mortar than actually cement factories. So I think what you, what you have is you know, a person you know, who probably understands a particular business in a way that is, is, is a reality for what he's dealing with. Again, the French and the Germans being able to build infrastructure on the continent of Africa was something they were able to use gun, gun, gunboat diplomacy to do. They took the land and they started building on it and, and they created infrastructure that benefited their access to Africa as a client state. It didn't, they didn't build in order to benefit Africa to trade with itself because, again, they had partitioned off Africa and, and each of them had their own interests, so they made sure they were self-contained and self-controlled within that context. I think if we can deconstruct that with some of the work he's doing, I think we're in a better direction. And I, but I also think, you know, again, using technology, there are some things that that, you, that they're going to build with brick and mortar or cement that are going to become quite obsolete very soon. I mean, we look at, you know, self-driving cars in America, but it's not just self-driving cars. You're talking about self-flying planes. You're talking about, uh, you know, these large, uh, what do y'all call them? Tro we, we call them Mack trucks, semi-tractor trailers. But you know, pretty soon there's a lot of these things that are being that are dependent on a brick and mortar infrastructure that's going to become pretty obsolete soon. So I think there's a a balance. I think uh, at the end of the day, there's no Google factories, there's no Twitter manufacturing facility. So I think the return on some, some connectivity and some servers can be pretty awesome. And some of the stuff that he's doing, it does take a lot of capital. And if we can figure out how to, how to get access to that capital, I think it's, it, it does need to go into infrastructure, but I think it needs to be a balance with some of the technology that we're seeing uh, where we get the most uh, hyper growth. I didn't, I forgot to mention the, the petrochem refinery that he has planned for Nigeria, which I mean, really ambitious stuff. Also does kind of feel late to the party given how renewable energy seems to be probably the most important thing in terms of sustainability for our uh, for the continent really just the world but perhaps he's onto something in a way that we are not um, again credit where it's due I do think his rhetoric around technology as you've pointed out does need to improve or change um, I don't see any benefit to him signaling that there's no merit in in investing in technology is just too risky. I don't know. I'm not interested. These are the kind of things he'd say. Uh, and I, I feel for that reason, I'd, I'd, I'd show him a demerit. But I do challenge all of you listeners out there who contributed to this Twitter storm and the Facebook firestorm around this issue to engage more deeply with really what's at stake here because it's easy on the surface to sort of just criticize him for being, uh, uh, you know, for not being an African investment proponent when in fact um, he's probably on to several several fundamentals that we 
we mere mortals <laughs> who've never had more than a thousand rand. You know, I don't know. What do you think? I, I think also we got to be clear that in Nigeria, you know, you got the Boko Haram. You got, you, you got a lot of players in that country that are manipulating and taking advantage. And I, you don't know what pressures that brother's going through. So let, let me just say this. We need to hold everybody accountable. But again, when you start talking about the resources that he's engaged in, you're, you're, you better know that there are people in the UK and the United States that are actively working through with or somehow uh, connected to him. And when we challenge our leaders, we have to be more sophisticated. We have to not just single them out. We need to talk about the whole genre of business. Don't again. We we don't. We got to be sophisticated in this. We need to hold people accountable. But don't. If we only got one brother in the room doing this, maybe the better approach would be to talk about this as a, a, a whole industry. How do we address that industry and not just single this one brother out? Who probably when he walks in the room, he's already dealing with like a whole bunch of other issues that he wouldn't have to deal with if he wasn't an indigenous African person. So I think we as followers, and I and I tell people. Most of us are going to be spending most of our life as, as followers. We should be better followers. I'm not saying don't be a leader. I'm saying a good follower does hold their leader accountable, but also a good follower doesn't allow their leader to become vulnerable, to be attacked, which then makes it bad for everybody. So I think there's a real way that we need to hold these people accountable to make them better, but understand the cement industry is not controlled by nobody in Africa. It's controlled by Europeans. So whatever piece he's getting, it's just a piece of a huger pie. And whatever we can do to change that dynamic, we need to speak to it with a real knowledge of the whole elephant and not just be looking at the trunk and saying that's the trunk is bad and also i mean let's just remember how much technical expertise an acumen is required to execute uh, to execute on a business that allows you to be the biggest cement manufacturer on the continent or as he's you know aspiring to be one of the major players within petrochem refining on, on the continent there's science in that i know he doesn't even call it tech himself but uh, creative ways to you, I feel, as well. Yeah, The tentacles of this type of infrastructure business is very huge. That does not mean you don't hold people accountable. All I'm saying is sometimes we don't look at the full picture of how these businesses operate, and then we actually throw the baby out when it was really the bathwater. Let's talk about another billionaire uh, real quick. Patrice Motsepe, South Africa's richest black man, I, I believe sixth overall which is crazy, in 2017. Nevertheless, the African Rainbow uh, Capital Investments, and a recently Johannesburg Stock Exchange listed entity, Patrice's uh, uh, business ARC, owning a 50% stake in that, essentially making it a black economic empowered vehicle. Uh, that means it's by default, given its its black economic empowerment status in South Africa. If you've never heard of that, just Google that and you'll start to understand what that means. It automatically means they're well positioned to, to benefit from some of the, the business opportunities which are reserved for black economic empowered entities. Nonetheless, um, by merit, a, a significant business looking to take on uh, the banking incumbents, many believe the first serious threat to the dominance of the big four here in South Africa, which include the likes of ABSA, Barclays, and others. Since Capitec 
bank launched 15 years ago. Uh, they're well on the way to closing a deal to buy a 10% stake in Time, uh, the fintech, South African fintech Time, which was previously snapped up by the Commonwealth Bank of Australia uh, uh, you know, a few years ago. Uh, they're getting a 10% stake in that business. A banking license is going to come as part of that deal. And everything Time has so far struggled to do because of their not-so-positive black economic empowerment status, they should be now able to do. And this is one of something like 30, 32-odd companies, um, uh, half of which will be in the finance space. A lot of people looking at this with great interest. Um, Patrice Motsipo himself coming out in, in the media saying he's been working on this for a while. Really relieved to see that listing done and dusted. A lot of expectation around, wow, finally, um, some serious black skin in the game, as it were, um, in, in, a, in what's really been uh, an industry that has been thoroughly resistant to transformation, not just in terms of diversity, but really just in terms of, uh, of uh, adapting business models or modifying business models to, to do one, keep up with where the world is at technologically, but really just do what's best for the people. I am sort of cautiously excited, I have to say. Yeah, I, I think, again, you know, if you look at the financial system that we, not just in, in South Africa, throughout the continent, it's still controlled by the players that came and originally, you know, colonized and, and controlled our wealth. And the, now, you know, you fast forward today, we, we act as if this wealth came from some incredible business acumen or some great innovative uh, sense. But a lot of it came from straight brutality. And it was in a in a, a age where if there had been a, a Hague or any fair any fairness at all, many of these folks would have gone to jail for crimes against humanity. I think what we're looking at today is, you know, South Africa is moving slowly, but I think what you'll see is that as as we move slowly, those who resist the change come up with very clever ways to maintain control. Um, I think if we have this brother in a position to control some bank licenses. If you, anyone who's ever in business knows that, you know, having a good relationship with a bank is, is, is fundamental. And then when you can't get a bank to, to look your way because of they're, they're based on a, a colonial model that's racist and oppressive, then it, it limits your access. So I think for the greater good of the business community, I think we need to have more indigenous Africans in control of the finances, period. And we need to make sure that we hold them accountable not to do the things that they may have learned from the, their colonial predecessors. But at the same time, I think it is uh, reasonable to be optimistic and uh, from this make sure that, again, we, we, it bears the fruit that it should bear for the, the whole economy, not just for ownership of banks, ownership in the financial sector, but the, in America, the, we have huge mega black churches, but they spend all their money in banks controlled by mostly Europeans. So that money never really gets leveraged back in the community in which it came in came from. Well, we need to make sure that on the continent of all places that indigenous African people are able to benefit from the wealth that's being controlled by their financial institutions. And I, I'm really positive about um, the role of time as part of this this assertion on the part of ARC. I have no doubt that there's been a significant resistance to their ability to deliver low-cost banking to 
to, to millions of South Africa. I know that they've been, there's been a lot of resistance to the sort of disruption that this could cause. Um, banks who have so far been content to just profiteer all the way, really at the expense of the, of the entire economy. And so, like you say, we'll be keeping a close eye on this one. Like any of these um, sort of BEE, Black Economic Empowerment linked deals that we've seen over the years, there's, there's always room to criticize how only a very few seem to benefit from them in the long term. Definitely want to keep an eye on uh, moving the needle, albeit slightly, I think so. Here's a really cool um, piece of news. I mean, it is being accompanied by hype, to be sure. Um, a firm called Greenwish Partners, uh, they're a renewable energy company run by a, a former JP Morgan executive. Um, now, they have plans to invest something like $800 million on solar-powered telecom towers across the continent. They want to start in the DRC. Um, if you're familiar with this, with the telecom scene uh, on the continent, you'll know how problematic it is to to keep those towers uh, live. Of course, there's there's diesel involved. There's all the logistics involved to getting the diesel to all these to all these towers and keep them running. How cool would it be if many of these towers were now powered by solar power? This is what uh, Greenwish Partners seeks to do. Um, they want to turn a lot of these towers green. Of course. Off the cuff, I'm thinking, well, this probably comes at a time when mobile telcos are looking for any way to cut costs to recover from all the, you know, the revenue loss they've, they've experienced because of call revenue that's migrating to data, etc. And probably looking for more efficient ways to, to deliver data to people, you know, maybe improve their bottom line, essentially. But overall, I think a great idea. Again... Wouldn't it be great if someone like Aliko Dongote was behind something like this as opposed to like foreign money? But I mean, come on, we can't always have our cake and eat it, can we? Again, as long as we, the, 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 the local people maintain control as, as best they can, I, I think, again... You're big on control, I have to say, because I mean, this thing comes... So people listen to the show who subscribe to various uh, genres of capitalism and I'm no doubt sort of just wincing every time you you know they they hear you say some of these things and um i like to think of myself as a pragmatist a social capitalist on some level sometimes all the way socialist depending on the day uh, i'm never one thing but i totally vibe with a lot of your sentiments is there any point you, you ever sit yourself down and think i could take this too far where it becomes counterproductive to think this way the answer is no and then Again, even in the United States, you know, wherever you go from city to city, there's different rules. The states have different rules. And the fun, fundamental thing is, is making sure you're protecting the people. And, you know, we had a situation where we had no uh, regulatory guidelines on our food production. And they were putting all kinds of things in the food. So at the end of the day, I think there are the, the free market is, is definitely a great tool. But none of these tools, you, you know, I think that's the, the point you said, is there a length I would go to say I go too far? I think when we start talking about free marketeering, there's, there's points where you have to say this is, we've got a track record for the last 500 years what the free market has done. We need to take an evaluation of that. I think it's just fair. I think look at what free market, what has happened in this, this, in these economies, and we have to safeguard these economies. And not only safeguard them, as indigenous as Africans, we never look at the fact that out of all 
the hostile, hostile things that's happened to us, all the, the traumatization that we've gone, our bodies, our psychology has gone through as Africans, we never take out a time out. We never had anyone say, you know what, y'all been through a whole bunch. Let's just take a deep breath and, and lick our wounds and just like heal. We go from one thing, now we're going to this, we're going to that. So I'm saying, yes, as, as African people, we got to make sure that whatever the next move is, as brilliant as it may sound, we've had people come in boats before talking about how good and how helpful they're going to be, and they double-crossed us. Now, I don't think that's me being paranoid or weird. That doesn't mean there's not allies that are going to be on those boats. But when these folks were lost at sea, didn't, were thirsty, was hungry, we invited them in and we gave them a, a food to eat. We, we nursed them back to health, showed them how to grow food, we introduced them to our family members. They gave us free basics, though. And next thing you know, you know, we're colonized. So I'm just saying, look, I don't think, you know, a person's being unreasonable to have a level of healthy skepticism about engagement around resources in Africa. I think it's being actually being wise. And we can't forget the past, but we should be informed by it and we shouldn't be chained to it. We shouldn't we shouldn't use the past to keep us from moving forward. But again, like Elon Musk said, he said, go back to the first principles. Well again, let's just go back to what happened in the original engagements and we need to make sure that we learn from those lessons. Even if the the construct or the sophistication has been modernized, fundamentally, Europe is still extracting wealth from Africa at a supreme discount, and they then take that and then make it, a, they, they sell it again at an incredible premium. And we got to stop it. Let's talk about Kenya real quick, though. I mean, how about that uh, election result being overturned? I mean, we had Eric Mugendi here uh, of Pesacek, uh, editor at Pesacek, here to talk about the, the role of fake news in that election. And we did it, in we intentionally uh, held, um, uh, interviewed him the day before the election and waited until the result to put the, to, to put the, the audio out. We didn't want to, you know, we don't want to be mixed up in, 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 in sort of, uh, you know, swaying things one way or another. And it's so incredible. If you haven't listened to that episode, go, go to AfricanTechRoundup.com, uh, African go to the Quick Tech Chats playlist and find that um, interview, um, that chat uh, I had with Eric, just, just to see how really on point he was in terms of his analysis of the situation and how it turned out. Um, speaking to your point, though, International observers in the place going, everything's great, you know, uh, you know, did, did we even have our own uh, Tabumbeki out there going, yeah, this is okay, you know, and, and then the people themselves, as represented by the judiciary going, actually, uh, this is not how great elections go down, um, we're going to have to do this over. I, I, to me, that was just so profoundly encouraging um, in terms of not, not because, of course, the election didn't go well, because, I mean, there's, that's obviously an indictment on, in, on some level. But the maturity of a people to, to determine themselves, um, even when it's potentially embarrassing in that regard, I thought was pretty incredible. And then probably in the same week that happened, Kenya declaring that plastic is over, like illegal. Like South Africa, like charges for plastic, so you, you're not going to be you're not going to be in trouble or go to jail for like selling plastic or buying it. Kenya's like, nah, like enough. Our environment, our, our, our country's too, cannot, cannot. I, I mean, come on, man. I, I just, Kenya, shout out to you, man. Yeah, I was there last week and I, I, 
They told me, no, we can't put it in a plastic bag. We bought some sheets and some other things, and they were in like these cloth with little handle things. And so I, I think, you know, again, I, I think, you know, I've done enough politics. I think politics suck, you know, not to use a sophisticated word, but I think politics suck. And I think if we have to redo or change things, I think that's fair. I think at the end of the day, though, in Africa, I hear too much uh, being... Um, uh, too much being focused on elections, and I and I think of course elections are important, but you know Trump, Obama, no matter who's president, business people in America still do business. At the end of the day, we're not looking for no politician to save us. They they suck at saving people. So I think in real ways, technology gives us other tools than to hope that the election board and all these observers do their job. I think what we need to make sure, those in the tech community, that we're leveraging our knowledge of technology in a proper orientation to solve real problems in a very sustainable way, no matter who gets in the office. And I think that's that's where I'm with. I've done enough American politics to know that these people are some lying, cheating, they're very average of, of average intelligence, their morals are very like distorted and they're bought and paid for by business people and, and they manipulate things. At the end of the day, people in technology with the right orientation will will create longer lasting uh, um, prosperity than any uh, any election. And so next door to Kenya, uh, and you might notice I'm just I'm just loving testing these topics on, on Sinclair here and just getting his take on it. Um, Tanzania now boasting the world's biggest drone program, courtesy of Zipline, of course, an American company. If you don't know about them, they send these little jets into the sky with like medicine attached to them or um, plasma or whatever's needed out in in, in a rural part of the country that's difficult to reach um, and, and quite efficiently uh, drop or by parachute, you know, goods that are required. Um, look, uh, again, I, I'm encouraged by what seems to be the embracing of technology for good, which is if something works better, if there's a better way to do it. I mean, there are lots of politically and perhaps... Uh, uh, poorly motivated reasons to maintain inefficiencies in say the way we deliver medicine or the way we deliver education and that kind of thing but i'm glad to see i'm 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 i'm, I'm encouraged whenever i see um countries policymakers give a nod to um opportunities to do things that much better it does smart that zipline is not in fact an African company, and please let me know if there are any drone delivery type businesses on the continent that aren't being shown love because, you know, Zipline gets all the headlines. But yeah, I guess, you know, shout out to you, TZ. Um, more accountability, hopefully live saved. I don't see too much to hate here. Yeah, I think uh, as long as we're doing proper technology transfers, I think uh, the startup community in Africa, the, the, one of the other things we noticed is that not enough uh, uh, indigenous African people are on a cap table. Not enough of them are actually getting equity in these startups. So when you look at these so-called you know startups being successful in Africa, you know in our company again, you know my my co-founder is an indigenous African person, uh, Mr. Christopher Mapendera, and then our team of developers are indigenous African folks. So in in all the the seed rounds and the, and the investment that's being done in our company. 
you know, there are local indigenous people who are participating in the equity of the companies. And even sitting down with our attorneys in, in the states, they say, you know, there's issues that make it a little more difficult to determine the, how the vesting works because of the uh, compensation in other comp comp countries and how that's done. But when these companies are saying that they're in African in Africa doing business, we really want to know how much equity do our, our people in these local countries have in these these startups and we need to make sure that that's something that that when we're evaluating if someone's doing well and if they're amazing and that should be one of the the criterias of being amazing is how much of this is actually connected to wealth building locally in africa not taking wealth as we've seen for the last 500 years so finally maybe Let's talk about Africa's biggest tech company, Naspers, which has a problematic link, a solid straight line, I'd go as far as saying, to less than savory financial dealings in the apartheid era. They continue to, to dominate cable television on the continent. Um, they've, they've grown a significant internet business on the continent. Um, but really their lifeline at this stage is a massive stake they own in a Chinese business one of the world's most valuable companies, easily top five, Tencent. And their CEO, board, uh, chairperson, constantly taken um, to task by some factions within their shareholding uh, that, listen, you guys aren't winning it much except this amazing call you made in, in Tencent. And please uh, give us the option to invest directly in this amazing opportunity and bundle so and then carry on with the mess you have going and and so yeah we're talking Nasperis they they recently had their annual general meeting which you know apparently was pretty well controlled in terms of just making sure not too many tough questions were asked and that kind of thing and certainly to this point we keep we keep hinting that we're going to get there we we haven't dug our heels in into seriously uncovering why this company is as dominant as it is today and and, and how much of that is problematic and how much of that remains unaddressed in 2017 What's interesting, however, is since the AGM, one of their most significant moves has been to consolidate their cable business, DSTV, and their relatively newer Netflix-esque offering, uh, Showmax. Nasperis feature quite frequently in our show just because of how dominant they are as a player. And I thought it was pretty interesting to see how they've started to roll out for their premium subscribers here in South Africa, um, complimentary um, access to their Showmax offering, a free 99 rand, you know, to, to South Africa's richest <laughs> cable subscribers, which, you know, somehow feels wrong. But, yeah, it's interesting to me to see how they're trying to consolidate around some of their offerings to make an argument. I think we're, we're doing a lot more than it appears, and we certainly have a lot more going than our investment in Tencent. Yeah, I, I think... I think some of this goes back to some of the fundamental problems in, on the continent in general with how we dealt with uh, what has happened in a negative way from apartheid to the former colonial powers. I think uh, we, we changed it from governments to corporations controlling mu much of the wealth. Even when I hear people say dictators in Africa, I'm like, most of these African countries, militaries aren't controlled locally. Most of their economies really aren't controlled locally. They're actually being dictated to by European companies. And I think 
and then this is going to take it real far out there, but at least, you know, when we had Nazi Germany, they had a Nuremberg trials and they actually deconstructed the whole Nazi supply chain. So it wasn't just you can't call yourself Nazi. Some people got hung. Some people were, were able to turn other folks in. But their whole system of operation was dismantled. What didn't happen in Africa was a truly dismantling of the economic engine that sustained the whole colonial model itself. We had some change of governments. You no longer were a commonwealth. Now you have your own country. You have an election. But fundamentally, the economy is still being controlled by players that got their wealth from hundreds of years of just doing some of the worst God knows things in the world. So now you have this company who's still under the, the cloud of whatever happened in apartheid. And, you know, is, is it fair? Is it not fair? Well, I, I think if they had a Nuremberg in South Africa and folks were hung for the crimes against humanity and they had dismantled whatever went on and doing apartheid and started new like they did in Germany, uh, no one was going to wonder if if Mercedes or, or 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 BMW, people are clear, if they were, they were dealt with like you dealt with the folks who were criminals. Those things didn't happen in Africa, and we still go through this whole long list of, of entities that benefited from really hurting people, and they now have been able to change their name or change their image and make it look like they gained all this from being just great stewards of business. I think, it, you know, again, I, I think the answers are not really simple, but I think fundamentally it, it speaks to an issue of not resolving the original sin and correcting it in a way that's really equitable. They may be a good actor, but as long as they still are reaping the benefits of all the, the pain and harm they've done, you know, there's going to be plenty of people who are going to think they've gotten away with murder. You can accuse us of a lot, a lot of things. Um, we don't claim to be perfect or get everything right, but I will tell you this. There are conversations about Africa's emerging tech industry that will not be had anywhere else but here. And um, it's no... Uh, it's no small thanks to people like uh, Sinclair and, and many of you listeners who, um, you know, listeners of the show, supporters of the show, many of you who don't necessarily end up on mic. I mean, you guys send us emails, you, you holler at us on, on, on social media, you, you, you support us, you, you, you fight for us. We, we almost have like our own little beehive. You know how like if you, if you, if you say anything about Beyonce, just say it in private, make sure that no recording devices are on anything because they will come for you, you know, and... And we really sense that support um, from places as far as Washington, uh, you know, where Sinclair's from, um, all across the diaspora, whether you're in the Caribbean, in Europe, um, in, in Asia, South America. We see you, fam. We, we, we see the, the analytics. We read your mail. Many of you we, we now come to know by name. And, and, and thank you for trusting us to have these conversations. For those of you who are outside the circle of quote-unquote family perhaps you're an outsider and you almost felt like <laughs> awkward for overhearing a family conversation homie this you know i'm speaking to you directly now if that's you um thank you too because none of the progress we need to make is going to happen if we shut ourselves off to other ideas to truly understanding or attempting to understand where people are coming from africa is not a country uh, africa in fact isn't even a bunch of countries it is a heaving mass of beauty and people make it up and make up that beauty. And, and we're trying to carve out a decent story to tell our grandchildren about what we did with what we were given. And 
And so that's really why I'm, you know, I'm going on now, but I'm, I'm really honored to have these conversations on here. The point is not to agree on everything, to, to make you feel comfortable or to be sure that we, we know we, there's some sort of consensus. The point is the conversations have to be had. And so with all that said, I'm going to thank you in a minute for being here, Sinclair. I'll thank you properly. One last time, I just want to thank um, the folks at VC for Africa um, for sponsoring this episode. Uh, they are the folks behind the VC for Africa Startup Academy. Again, I'm really quite um, honored to have been part of the birth of this project. All things uh, being equal, uh, the African Tech Roundup uh, team will be roped into uh, the next installment that you know should roll out in the coming year. But in the meantime, there's a great deal of knowledge that is at your disposal, a distilling of you know insights from people who are in the trenches of African tech and who have a lot to share with you in terms of what to do, some of the pitfalls you can avoid, and certainly what to think about when you're trying to get started. So um, head straight to vcforafrica.com forward slash academy. That's VC number four africa.com forward slash academy to download useful tools and take in advice from no less than 35 experts who are currently active in our uh, startup ecosystem so yep that's vcforafrica.com forward slash academy a huge thank you to Sinclair Skinner the man is between flights I don't think you understand what this man has done to, to be here with my last name to Morio so he's gonna be Morio are you for real like did, did they bless you like that yeah yeah, yeah I will do it yeah I, well, I was invited and you know some folks we've been talking about it. I need to get a proper surname Skinner I, I'm not a Skinner that was somebody who owned my great great grandfather I gotta stop glorifying that that's kind of odd and it's strange I have to say folks every time I, I, I've said his name on the show there's, like, there's a little slight flinch uh, does that happen everywhere or is it because you're home <laughs> as it were it's because i'm home again it, it makes you see the stark contrast if you meet somebody from china and he tells you his name is bill smith you're gonna look at him like look dude you don't look like no bill smith man <laughs> but i'm clear that there's an identity that's missing and i need to reconnect to it so i definitely appreciate all the infinite wisdom that's come from all the indigenous brothers and sisters that have uh, helped to educate and, and love me and love my wife and to you know show us the way and this, i'm glad you guys were able to, to maintain your identity maintain some cultural continuity so that you could share it with some of your cousins long lost that travel back so thank you on that we appreciate your your, your support and and certainly i mean i'm wearing my i love black people uh, the pal pins on the party i'm spreading spread the love. love spread the love brother spread the love and 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 for real we we love you and uh, safe trip i know your wife's waiting at the airport serious dedication this man made to, to be here today uh, to record this episode with us so uh, to all our listeners listening to us right now we love that you you stick with us give us a shout on social media at African Roundup on Instagram and Twitter facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup on Facebook drop us those emails send us a voice note you guys haven't done that in a while do that via hello at africantechroundup.com but until next time you know the deal take it easy Africa <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>